Welcome to the PMPA Speaking of Precision podcast, featuring your host, Miles Free. Hello, I'm Miles Free, and welcome to PMPA Speaking of Precision, Monday with Miles. Tanya DeSalvo has joined me today virtually, and we are going to talk about back after a positive test. Hi, Miles. <laughs> Happy to be here. Thank you for uh, taking the time to talk about this. It's super important in these crazy times to uh, to have a plan. Well, thanks. Thanks for accepting this, this invitation. Tanya, let's give our listeners a little bit of background. How long have you been the president there at Criteria? I bought my dad out in uh, 2010 was the formal date. I joined the company in 1998 just as a salesperson and kind of morphed into operations so my dad could take more than four days off for a vacation. But in 2010, after about five years of planning, I actually bought him out and took over the day-to-day operations and he packed up his marbles and he walked out the door to his credit and he took six months away from the facility and uh, we made a go of it, figured out if we could actually do it without him. So since 2010. So that had to be a pretty big change for you lifestyle-wise. My earliest recollections of you and our relationship, uh, I joined PMPA in 2003, and the only time I ever saw you was in an airport, usually in (laughs) L.A. or Chicago. Yes, we, my uh, favorite part of my job is new business development and the sales aspect and sitting in front of customers. So sitting behind my desk is absolutely the most uncomfortable place for me. I much more enjoy sitting in front of someone else's desk. So with all this pandemic keeping me tied down, that's you know been a challenge for sure. Um, but I much more enjoy, I think much like you, being out and about and really digging into the customer's issues and helping them solve their manufacturing problems in their environment because they're not so interested to see ours. Um, but that's really worked well for us in developing customers and relationships. Well, working with people really does energize people like you and me, that's for sure. Tanya, most of our listeners, when they think of machining, they think of turning and turned parts. So When they hear the word tool in the company name, Criterion Tool, they think that you're probably making tools. I know for a fact that that's not the emphasis at your company these days, right? Correct. So the company was founded actually as Criterion Tool and Die Incorporated. And our goal uh, when I bought my dad out in 2010 was actually to start morphing away from that name and do a website redevelopment and redo all our creative and all these things that were going on. Well, 2010 was kind of coming out of horrible time in 2008 and 2009. And I just remember walking through the facility because I think we had cut hours at that point or something. And you couldn't even hear the air compressor leaks, like nothing was running. And I swore I would never get into that situation again, because in that case, we had one customer that represented a super high percentage, like 70 plus percent of our business. And when they stepped back, we were in trouble. So I just remember walking around thinking, I am never going to do that again. So as we came through 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, it didn't seem as important anymore. 
And we really just kind of dug in and focused on the operation. So believe it or not, 2020 was the year that we were going to come up with our snazzy, you know, either three letter abbreviation or just go with criterion or kind of rebrand ourselves. But we have not focused on that um, as much because there's been way more important things to take care of. (laughs) So we are a precision machine shop and we machine parts from the size of the screws that hold your eyeglasses together to about the size of a basketball. Um, both churned three, four, and five axis milling uh, for what we call the no failure industries. And that's the medical device, the aerospace guys, the weapons firing, and the laser and photonics folks is the markets that we play in because we put those quality systems into place. And it doesn't seem that we can compete very well with just Joe's machine shop down the street. He does great work for a certain segment of the planet and we do good work for a different segment of the planet. So we've, we've put ourselves in that niche and we work really hard to find customers that have those requirements and demands because we don't fit machining parts for just anyone anymore. Right. So uh, that 2008, 2009 recession, you learned, obviously you just shared, you learned don't allow one customer to be 70% of my cash flow. What were some other lessons that you got out of that great recession? This is clearly not your first rodeo. Well, you know, each rodeo feels a little different and each lesson learned. The important part of it is that you remembered that you learned it and you don't have Groundhog Day and go back to doing it again. In 2008 and 2009, as ridiculous as it sounds, when we did have even a work slowdown then, we were still working overtime. We were still hustling, trying to get work out the door or like shipments kind of look like a hockey stick at the end of the month. And that's the time that I started um, working with the velocity scheduling system. And we started, I mean, we had lots of experience in the building. You know, my dad was still kind of on the fringes, although he wasn't involved in the day to day. I mean, I think if we added up all the experience of like the leadership group, we had, you know, 250 years of machining experience, but we're still freaking working overtime to get stuff out the door and we're expediting and we're running around like crazy. So at that time, when I said, there's got to be a better way to do this, I started researching it out because my background was sales, not making stuff. I used to sell things in in a quote unquote production environment, but then I threw it over the wall and I don't know what happened over on that side of the wall. I just complained about it because I was sales and I had made a commitment based on information I had and nothing was getting done. Well, now I'm responsible for the whole ball of wax from order coming in to parts going out the door. So I think that my takeaway from that first recession was I wanted to do everything and I couldn't and I needed to really get the team involved. And I would say that 2010, when we put that velocity scheduling system, which is a visual visual scheduling board, the leaders of the shop floor uh, interact with it. The team interacts with it. It helps set priorities every day from the machine operator to the shipping and receiving to quality so that there doesn't need to be somebody running around chasing the chicken to be sure things got done. So putting that into place certainly helped our shop floor. And we, by 2010 and 2011, I happened to be in a position at that point to start buying some equipment. So we rebuilt those sales relatively quickly. And as some people had some misfortunes, we were able to capitalize and and buy some equipment for our turning department because there were lots of sales and auctions and things going on. So we experienced a little bit of growth after that uh, with 
limited people because we put that you know scheduling system in place and we still use it today so we're 10 years down the road from that and that is one area that we've tweaked and morphed but as a facility i i don't know how we would operate without it anymore so that's the velocity scheduling system that was dr lisa lang as i recall that is correct that and her um theory from that came from the book the goal which is a great book to read. And when you read that, it's a story. It tells a story, Um, but there's no action, right? So I'm a big fan of after I read these books or, and I've got them in my office, you've seen them. I love all the philosophy, but what's the takeaway that I do tomorrow to make it better? I need to execute. I just can't read it and think about it because I don't know how the rest of the listeners days go, but I go to some type of event like that. I walk out with all these great ideas. And if I don't have a plan, when I walk back in the office the next day, I'm right back into the office the next day. And it's difficult to change how things are done or people's mindsets or even my own habits if I don't have a really clear execution plan. So Dr. Lisa Lang brought the how-to theory to me in lean manufacturing terms that I understood that made sense to me. It wasn't a lot of philosophy and uh, drum buffer no rope and all right. these like fancy terms. Right. I it, it worked for us and it was really easy to put into play and I understood it and we rolled with it. It was probably a 12 week process. And at that point, my dad was out of the picture. So the team was kind of like stuck with this crazy lady, both Lisa, Dr. Lisa and I, who said, we're going to try this for 12 weeks. It was a big experiment. And we saw our on-time delivery improve. We saw less chaos on the shop floor. Um, We still work the overtime, but we cut that back significantly. And we were able to get a handle on the on-time delivery and the volume of orders as they increased through the building. We didn't feel that friction anymore because we had a much better system in place. So between 2008 and nine. And now we need to be systems driven, not people driven. And I would think that that's probably the biggest change between what my dad was doing and what I do now is he had really skilled people. They should sit down and they could talk about um, how we wanted things done. They were, you know, tool makers and they were great programmers and they all could speak the same language. Well, now we're working with folks that may have come out of a completely different industry and have only been in the trade for a few years. So everything they learn, they learn from us. So our systems need to be tight so that we can help them be successful and our customers get good widgets for those no failure industries at the end of the day. So we've really worked hard on those systems and we continue to do that now, you know, in the pandemic time when there's not exactly orders rolling in at the same pace there were, you know, a, a year ago at this time. So you you learned a lesson about you couldn't you couldn't be perfect. It couldn't be just you. It's not just about you. You had to trust the team, and even more importantly, you had to give the team a system. So that's really great takeaway from that. And I just want to make sure our listeners know that. We will put uh, links and information to Dr. Lisa Lang and the Velocity Scheduling System in our show notes, as well, of course, as uh, a link to Criterion Tools website. So 
let's get back to the the story of today, the story of after a positive test. Mm-hmm. Your company is serving critical no-failure industries. So, of course, with this going on, uh, we've got the unknown killer death cooties showing up at your shop. And um, you're still working because you're an essential manufacturer, but you've got people that need to be there to work. They're probably concerned about being there to work and exposed to this unknown virus thing. Um, You're the president. You care about serving your customers. It's no failure industries, right? That means we ship. And yet you've still got this obligation to your team who have made it possible for Criterion Tool to be no failure industry star. So what was your approach when this when this all arrived? So, you know, when you think back to what did it look like in March? So St. Patrick's Day to me is kind of when it all the proverbial poop hit the fan and it was stay home, don't leave, you know, we're shutting businesses down, we're shutting things down. So we actually, from our customers, started getting like, we consider you essential. Do you have a plan? What are you doing? I mean, everybody was putting on their emails and their websites so that they were opened or not opened and who works from home. So we first thing we did was we started having weekly meetings with the team to talk about. Uh, there's two sources of information that I highly relied upon and the PMPA's updates were one of them, and the other was from um, our attorney, the law firm that we work with, uh, Myers Roman, because I'm a big fan of Seth Briskin. He's a labor law practice leader there. And so we were getting information from so many sources, Miles, and I got to believe that your listeners would agree that it became overwhelming on what to do when. So I picked two, and those were the two sources that I picked, and I just read every day whatever came in. And we were all panicking. And it was very scary to be one of the few cars on the road those first couple weeks in the middle of March when everything was shut down. And we had to give people a letter that said you were they were an essential employee and they could come to work. So we talked a lot about community and who you was in your community at home. Because there were still those naysayers that said, well, this isn't real. This is all just a government whatever shut down. Who's doing what? But it was pretty concerning. We put a TV up in the lunchroom and we all showed up whenever DeWine did his presentations um, and the president did his presentations and we allowed people to sit there and listen as long as they could. I would say for like a week and a half or two weeks, everybody showed up and then it got a little redundant and we just kept having weekly meetings. So for March and half of April, we had a weekly meeting where we talked about what was going on. We had people that were out with the EFMLA issues because they had children that couldn't come to work. So we were trying to figure out how to staff and cover. We bought wipes. We actually, and cleaning equipment and stuff. And we put up, uh, every department came up with a 20 point cleaning plan that we still use today. We've added onto it what to wipe down. We 5S special carts so we always knew where those products were. And we, we started cleaning like three times a day. Clean in the morning, wipe down after lunch, wipe down at the end of the day. We were taking everyone's temperatures. All of that was just because I didn't know what else to do. And I had to stand in front of everybody and say, this is what we're going to do. 
let's let's start with cleaning. Let's start with wiping the surfaces down. And we, I don't think we were wearing masks at that time. I didn't want to be the mask police. They steam up my glasses. It was kind of a pain in the butt. So we really, to the chagrin of the uh, human resources gals that our contract that we work with, we didn't do that. Uh, we did have a couple of folks that immediately started working remotely because they had family members with com compromised immune systems. So we dug in in March to be sure that if something happened, because I wrote kind of a plan that said, okay, I just assumed that the people that were going to get sick were going to be in the shop. Why did I assume that? Because there's more of them than there are in the office. So to me, it made more sense that we figure out how we're going to handle a problem in the shop. So we just kind of scribbled out a plan. We had those meetings. We started our wipe downs and we kind of just coasted along. The world came back. Um, we still had meetings talking about community and paying attention. And if you are hanging out with your neighbor who hung out with his neighbor who went to a bar because something was open or a restaurant, now we could all get sick because that we all just basically kissed that guy or that gal. So it was pretty intimidating at the time. And I think. When I didn't know the answer, I said to the team, I don't know. Let me see if I can find that out. And we'll have another meeting as soon as I, I know that. So more communication than less was really helpful, I think, for the team. So that's really uh, bravery on behalf of a leader to admit that you don't know. There were a couple things you did that I think you, you didn't recognize the importance of. In, in describing them, but you said you had communication meetings. And boy, there's, without communication, it would just be fear and rumors and you'd be back on your heels, you know, playing defense. So I think your decision to communicate uh, was, was clear, um, uh, clearly an advantage. And allowing everybody to see the same information, whether it's the governor's briefings or the president's briefings, uh, everybody's on the same page. So that's no, no advantage, no, I know something you don't know. But uh, the thing that really resonated with me, you talked about community, you know, who's, who's all in our community. And I'd, I'd like to share an, an anecdote because I think that is absolutely the genius move um, that I've heard so far. Uh, I was sent back to a steel plant that I had managed prior, earlier in my career. And uh, what had happened was this company, this plant was going to be sold. It was no longer going to be part of our big company. And I was asked to go down and manage it as the interim while I was still quality director for the whole corporation. And so I went down there and this plant happened to be in Cartersville, Georgia and had a great crew, but you know, here I was carpetbagger <laughs> the second time, right? And you're only here to to sell it and, you know, we're the ones with our jobs on the line and what I did was I took out my wallet and I took out the picture of my family and I said this is my wife she's relying on me to bring home a paycheck. And this is my oldest daughter. And she's relying on me to do my best so that she can go to college next year. And this is my uh, middle daughter. And 
you know, I'm going to have to save a lot more money because she's going to go to a really good school. <laughs> and by the way, this is my son. And, you know, he's played with some of your kids. And, and you know, these are the people that are counting on me. And then I turned to my foreman and I said, Carol, what's what's in your wallet? Who's Who's counting on you? And so he took out his wallet. And this is the guy that runs the shop, right? The bull. Bull mm -hmm. of the Woods, and, and there's a picture of him and his wife and a grandkid and, and the dog. And and every man, every person, the office gals, everybody showed a picture of who was involved. So this is like a little 40-person operation. But we had, you know, best part of 200 souls were counting on us to do our best. That was the only plant that our company sold that they actually got, you know, they, they got a multiple on because we were actually producing uh, product and profit. So that community, I think that's a genius lesson. And I'm so glad that you shared that. It, it was important. It, that was probably what got everybody to stop and think that it wasn't about them individually. It was about everybody's family. And when you started talking, Miles, exactly about the volume of people involved, we all just kind of paused. And I said, start to think about who you could be infecting and getting sick. And how would you feel if something went horribly wrong? And that is what keeps me up at night, right? I don't want to be responsible for that. So we can only do what we can do. And I believe so strongly in setting the narrative Without information, people can make up the way better, way better stories than the truth. So if we give them and set the table and put the parameters down and help them with the story, which is the truth, I'm not make, I'm not fabricating, but the story of the real activities that are going on that they don't see behind the scenes, I think that helped keep everybody calm. If they needed a day off, if they weren't feeling well, we were very generous with the PTO time, paying people if they called and said, I just need a day. No problem, because it was scary. But it was scary. Wow, that's 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 really uh, an enlightened uh, kind of approach. So in preparing for this, I thought, okay, so so PPP loans that that, like you said, figuring out who's got time off, what do you do, you know, setting up quarantine rules and stuff like that. You didn't mention that at all. You just wanted your team to feel comfortable doing the things that they did and knowing that their family was also going to be comfortable because you weren't putting them in danger. So that's that's really, you know, kind of unexpected. Would have expected, oh, you know, you know, there's people in, in rioting, you know, about inequality and <laughs> And you're talking about, well, yeah, you can ha take a day. Just take a day. Um, it's not at all about the PPP loan. Nope. And, you know, the, the PPP loan, grateful that we were able to submit all the proper documents and um, our bank was able to, you know, expedite that. And we were, or whatever they do with it, all that, but, and we were approved in that first round of financing. So we did take advantage of that. Um, we had had some layoffs at the end of November with our second shift, just because the work had shifted 
um, from the, the milling department, which is a little more hands-on for us, to the Swiss department, and we didn't need all the same team members. So we had kind of had a staff reduction at the end of 2019. So we thought we were, you know, all set for for 2020. So when we were able to take advantage of that PPP loan and we had to work out that EFMLA and the e-sick leave and the who could use it and, you know, team here's big fear. Everybody hears they get 14 more days off if they get the corona because that's what we called it. We just called it the Rona. And gosh, you hope your team doesn't want to abuse that. But if they needed a day, we gave them a day and we didn't really take away from that. I left it up to my CFO to help navigate all that piece of it. And thank God he reads every single thing that you put out and that he could get his hands on relative to all that. And he made the decisions of how we were going to classify the stuff that I did. But I wanted to go to bed at night knowing the best. I did the best I could for the team with the information that I had. And if that meant we paid out some time that wasn't accounted for properly, then so be it. Because the making the right decision and sleeping well was what was what drove me. Making the right decision and sleeping well is what drove me. That's a lot different than that gal I remember jogging <laughs> between gates at O'Hare for well, LAX. I have learned, and I think that's probably the biggest takeaway. So I, my team, if they were able to be on this call, would say, yeah, you know, Tanya has come a long way, but... You know, there were times when I said it was my way or the highway and don't let the door smack you in the butt on the way out. And I went through that whole, I am president and I am in power. And at the end of the day, it sucked. It just was horrible. So as I've put into play specifically, maybe over the last five to six years, really getting the team involved, this situation, I was the one that had the virus. I was one of the two folks on it and I w- it hit me hard and I couldn't function. I was lucky I could keep my head up for 20 minutes at a time without needing to take a nap. So we put our plan into place, uh, which was we, after I got my, after I called and said, I feel crappy, we shut down a half a day. We had the cleaning crew come in and um, do the spray decontamination. Masters of Disaster came in and they have a whole COVID protocol. Um, The team worked Wednesday of that week And when I got my positive diagnosis, we pulled everybody except one person out of the office and we said, okay, now we got to all quarantine. And this is what we, we had to decide, are we going to shut the whole company down and send everybody home for two weeks? Or can we pull the senior leadership out of the building? That's the leaders in both departments, that's purchasing, that's estimating, that's the front desk and ordering and material and handling invoicing. How are we going to do that? So we did set everybody up in the beginning to work remotely, but we never really had a dry run. Our first dry run was real time. <laughs> so uh, kind of funny. First but time my, is the Super Bowl. Yeah. The first so, time is the Super Bowl. So we uh every I couldn't I couldn't participate. I couldn't check emails. I couldn't really I was out for uh, 10 days minimum before I started feeling like a human. So if they needed me, they had to text me or call me, but I was unavailable and they were available, but they were at home taking phone calls because we decided that we were going to close the office down because those are the people that I had been in contact with. We left the shop floor running. I took two of my Wiley veterans not really in a leadership role. They're just the guys that breathed air in the building the longest. 
And I had a phone call with them. We did a group uh, call and I said, listen, this is where we're at. We either have to send everyone home for two weeks or we're going to shut down for on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And whoever's healthy, if no one has any symptoms, they can come back to work on Monday. If people develop symptoms, then we'll have to figure out how to get them all tested. But I think everyone will feel better knowing that my symptoms showed up within a couple of days and they would know. So they agreed. I mean, they wanted to keep working. We had orders and customers to take care of. So they said, okay. And each department lead that was out of the facility gave their cell phone number and was on emails. And we used the Zoom meeting app and we uh, used a simple in and out app on our phones, which we could say that we were available remotely. So we could tell who was working and who was away from their computers or their phones. And we made it. Can I ask you to uh, tell me the name of that in and out app? Our listeners might find that helpful if they get in a similar situation. Yep. It's called the Simple In Out. And it's an app on the iPhone and the uh, Android. And it allows you to set a geofence around the facility so when you're physically in the, when I drive down the street and I enter into the geofence area, which is a fancy word for some kind of bubble around criterion that my phone recognizes when I leave my location on, um, it says I'm in the building. When I drive up the street and I leave the facility bubble, it says I'm out of the building and it doesn't track, you know, I had a couple leaders that are like, are you following me? And I said, nope, it only works in our area, but it's great because I don't see everyone. They don't always see me, but they can quickly look at that app and see who's in the building or get a ping when someone comes and goes. Because maybe somebody runs out for lunch and it's a little long and they're not back yet. We'll be able to see out of the leadership group who's available. So it's it's got a very minimal yearly subscription fee. Um, everybody's, the app's free. It's on all the devices. And we found it really helpful because you could say, I'm available remotely. I'm in the facility. Um, I'm not available, which was what my situation was. And everybody knew that there was no, no contacting me. I was down for the count. So it, that little app worked out really well for us to be able to know what was happening without having to have text messages flying because text messages were flying, emails were flying. Everybody was trying to figure out what the best way to communicate was. Cause again, it was our first dry run real time. <laughs> Wow. So uh, again, communication comes up as one of your strengths and key concerns. Mm -hmm. So what, what, what did you feel like when you first got the news that you, you had the Rona? <laughs> the, the Rona. I will tell you, it was really difficult when you listen to the news. It sounds miles like everybody can get a test, right? They're testing professional athletes three times a week. They're, they're doing this, they're doing that. Um, it was really difficult. I went through all three major health systems in this town um, to figure out how to get a test because they said, well, it sounds like you have it. And I had lost my sense of taste, which is like the 99%. That's it. That's it. Um, they're like, yep, you got it. You just need to stay home for 14 days. And I said, nope, not good enough. I need a test. I do have a fever. I do have this. You know, I've been taking my temperature at work since St. Patrick's Day. I know my number is 97.7 dead nuts on. So something's wrong. So it took me quite a while to navigate that whole system. When they tell you, you have the Corona, it is the most 
it is this very strange feeling because it's always been at arm's length for me. I never really knew anybody that had it. I'd heard stories, blah, blah, blah. So they call and say, Mrs. DeSalvo, this is XYZ Hospital. We're calling to tell you that you did test positive for COVID-19. You took the handout yesterday, so you have 12 pages of information. Please monitor your symptoms with Tylenol and Advil. If you get into a situation where you have a difficult time breathing, be sure when you report to emergency room, you tell them that you're COVID positive. Thanks so much. Have a good day. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Back up the bus. I said, that's it. <laughs> yep. I said, do I need a test at the end of this to be sure I'm clear? Because my team's going to want to know when I go back to work. No, we don't do any post-COVID testing because it's possible that you still may have that in your system, but you're no longer contagious. I'm like, what? So at the end of the day, I learned that there's lots of information out there, depending on what you read, on isolating for 10 days after you're actually diagnosed, quarantining for 14 days if you've been around someone, um, we have to report to the health department for the next four weeks because we have multiple cases. Um, I did infect a member of my family. So that, you know, she had no symptoms. She's my oldest daughter. She's in her early 20s and she didn't have any symptoms, but she tested positive. So it's very concerning to me that I had the thing that's killing all these people and it was about a 12-second phone call from a gal that just sounded like she was having a great day. And I hung up the phone and thought, oh, my God, I got the corona. <laughs> wow. What now? I mean, wow. that's it. That's the end yeah. of it. Primary care doctor, yep, no problem. Just keep, if you can't breathe, go to the hospital. That is what's happening today. And I am just miffed through the whole system. And I, when we came back, so my first day back, all this happened, started on the 31st of July, my first day back to work was Monday of this week. Guess what I did at 10 o'clock Monday morning is we had a company meeting. And I told everybody. Communication. Yep. Yeah, I had a meeting about how I felt, when I felt it, what I did, what we did as a company. Does anybody have any comments or concerns? Should we do something different? We now have a game plan. If it happens in a department, this is how we're going to handle it going forward. I learned about contact tracing through the health department and our um, HR folks that we've been working with. So we worked that. What's really interesting is kind of a sidebar note is I spent weekends up uh, at the lake near Catawba and I hang out with about 10 people up there and it was raining that weekend. So we all sat outside, thank goodness. And we all sat around when it stopped raining. We were in the garage, you know, having some adult beverages around the fire pit. And out of those 10 people, six people tested positive. And those, out of those six people, I was one, my daughter was another. Four of them then went out to dinner on Sunday because nobody knew we were positive with 10 other people and six of those people tested positive. So I can contact trace back to 40 people that within two days all started getting symptoms in the middle of that first week of August because they had been around me. And, and the rule of thumb from the health department is if someone's in six feet of you for 15 minutes, for 48 hours before or after you start having symptoms, they could indeed test positive. And I had not heard that little tidbit prior. So then I had to call all my friends 
and deal with all that and their kids who went to graduation parties. I mean, the, it's amazing how quickly that explodes. So when we right. talked about community in our building on that Monday afterwards, I shared that same story about how like it went from myself to six people to 12 people to then all their families and how quickly it blows up. So the community aspect really becomes important in addressing if you feel off to take those extra day or two to stay home because it blows up so quickly and not everybody has any symptoms. So that was our communication. We had a couple of suggestions about additional um, cleaning methods. I did not participate in, but the leadership, senior leadership did several Zoom meetings during those two weeks so that they could see faces and everybody, you know, we just turned the computer around and everybody kind of gathered around it with their masks on. And they were able to ask questions about how I was doing, what was going on. So I just, you got to kill them with communication, Miles. That was probably the one thing that really helped everybody stay in the know was talking. So in the Great Recession, in the Great Recession, it was velocity scheduling and doing it as a team. And now after the pandemic, after... Uh, the lesson that you learn is uh, kill them with communications, communicate, communicate, communicate. Is that right? Yep. And the team, you know, needs to hear it from me, the senior leadership group. And now we've had enough of situations where when they say something, everyone's comfortable that they're representing, you know, what the company way is. I think it, it takes a while for the Wiley veterans in particular who, who did work for my dad that are still there because we got some of them to, to trust that system and know that they don't need to hear it from me. Well, you know, I could be accused of being a Wiley veteran in the steel business. And when you hear a boss say, uh, go ahead and just take the day. <laughs> That's like pinch me, right? That's a, we're not in Kansas anymore. So you really are expressing a different culture than, than what you inherited. I mean, this idea of, of enlightened use of time off, um, that's probably not that common, certainly not in manufacturing. No, and I... I certainly have had the CFO say something and I, I keep my uh, dad in the loop. You know, I'm fortunate he's still around and he's still interested. And he, he still, we still kind of butt heads on some of that because there are still things that he is hardcore, old school, and I love him to death for it. But at the end of the day, I don't feel good about that. So I know I needed a couple mental health days in the middle of all that, and I couldn't afford to take that time and be away. So we worked and we're in the facility, you know, four and a half or five days a week since March 17th. So people are like, oh, did you know, how was it when you were at home for two weeks? I'm like, well, first of all, I felt like crap and I couldn't function very well. And I didn't enjoy like doing a honeydew list or anything like that. I just was worried about what everybody else was doing at work and how they were getting by because I wasn't able to participate in any calls or conference calls or decisions. Everybody had to had to make the best call. The outcome of the 
2008 recession and today is, my takeaway is we got to test fast, fail fast, and adjust fast. So if you're in charge of making a decision, pull the trigger. You cannot sink the ship with one decision that's not correct. It, it, it's not... It may be the wrong decision when we learn that after we get more information, but you made one and we took a step. So if it's the if there's a different step we should take, we can always course correct. But immobility and not making any decision makes everything after that. It just bottles up and bottles up and bottles up. So the number one thing that my team will say, and we just hired a quality manager and his first day was the first day we were all back in the office. And, and that's what we talked about at the company meeting was everybody made decisions. The guys that were put in charge of things that probably weren't comfortable with that, they made decisions. And were they the right ones? Well, we don't know. We think so. Everybody showed back up. Everybody did what they were supposed to do. We can always course correct. But when we don't make any decisions, it just keeps piling up and it takes so long to unravel that. That is my number one as the owner and the leader pet peeve. So I've tried, and this is where I would hope my team would say that I've gotten better is I don't shoot the messenger when they tell me what their decision was. And I go, hmm, I don't think I like that one very much. I say, well, let's let it play out. Let's see what happens because we may still get there, just not exactly the way that I would have got there. And I think that's been my biggest takeaway from 2008 till now is, there are a lot of ways to get things done. I thought I knew the best way because someone knighted me president. And so therefore <laughs> my way was, was going to be great. But there's other great smart people on my team that have managed to figure it out. And if I pause and allow them to execute, we're better as a group than me issuing mandates and dictating things. And it makes my life so much better. They don't come to me for stuff anymore that they used to come to me at. So I've managed to put a little distance and space there. They're handling things. They may come to me and say, so this was my problem and this is what I did. And now we're going to wait and we're going to see. And I say, cool. And they're like, that's it? I'm like, yep, yeah, let's wait and see because two things will happen. It was the best decision we could have made or we'll find out that there was one that we probably could have made that was better. But we'll course correct. We took a step. We'll course correct. No problem. So that has been my greatest relief was we did it. We made it through. People made decisions that weren't really comfortable making them. Nobody got quote unquote shot as the messenger. When they kind of, re when I came back, I didn't ask how it went. Everybody came down to tell me all the decisions they made. And I said, hey man, I'm good. I don't want to talk about it. Let's just let it play out. And if it blows up, then get me involved. And whatever you did was great. And I think they were all so astonished at that. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, the, the thing that always frustrated me as a manager and as a leader was that people wanted to be safe. And it was safer to do nothing than it was to do something. And I remember coaching my senior management that the culture of the the company that we were in the process of creating was very comfortable with sins of omission <laughs> and nobody was comfortable with the sin of commission. And that really resonated. And so we like celebrated when, when somebody 
fail fast, fail early. We celebrated. It wasn't about, oh, you you messed up. It was, thank you for doing your best. Yes. Here's what we learned and move on. So that's really a tremendous takeaway. And I can only imagine the astonishment from your team when you didn't second guess every decision that they made with their knees trembling, knowing they didn't have the facts they needed and really didn't have the authority, but they were responsible anyhow. You know, it's kind of crazy, but it's like the imposter syndrome because I don't, I'm going to say it out loud, but sometimes I don't know either. I just pick something and go and we try it. And so I am very comfortable with that risk. And I understand that not everyone is, um, but they did it and they did it well. And I'm really proud of all of them and the whole company, our community, because they came through with flying colors and it feels like it was all those little decisions, you know, as you've talked and we've gone through this and this time that we've had together, that it's all those little decisions that got me to the point that I was at so that I did what I did. Because if this would have happened seven years ago, probably wouldn't have gone exactly as such. I just wasn't as mature in my own leadership development and my own mm, abilities to turn it over and let it play out as opposed to trying to control every variable. I thought if you hustled more and worked hard, more and harder, it got better. And I've had some leadership development and worked with some personal business coaches that that doesn't work so good. It's way better to involve the team and get everybody playing along. And boy, it's made my life different, better, and easier on a lot of the business front, having somebody to rely on. And it's helped you convert Criterion Tool from a company that produces parts to a no-failure company that didn't fail their no-failure customers when the positive test came in. Mm -hmm. Still sounds scary when you say it now, Miles, but I'm happy that you were interested in how we did what we did because there's so little information that I could find about what to do when, when this happens. And it keeps, it keeps changing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, I, I follow it. We post Joe Jackson here. Our engineer is curating on our website, uh, all the information we get from, from uh, CDC and, and all the authorities and it just keeps changing. So uh, really congratulations to your team for stepping up realizing that they had the responsibility to not fail and did their best and their best was good enough mm -hmm. and your customers are served and your your employees still have job and a livelihood um it's great and thank you for sharing your experience oh you are welcome miles always a pleasure to talk to you and Please keep up the good work curating all that information because it is very helpful to get it from a reliable source and in a concise format. So I appreciate you, Joe, <laughs> and the whole team at BMPA for organizing all that. So thank you. 
Well, thank you, Tanya. I look forward to running into you in an airport far, far away someday soon, just like the old days when that was both of our natural habitats. Miles, me too. Can't tell you enough. So thanks for having me on the podcast today. I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Tanya. And that wraps up today's discussion about back after a positive test with Tanya DeSalvo, president of Criterion Tool. Thank you for joining us. For additional information, please visit pmpa.org.